is my name and fucking up motherfuckers is my game. your hair. You look like a pimp. It's all pretend. I just created a character. Don't you mind. You true. Pull on that. Oh, that's oh, a wee. That's right. Whatever it takes, I'm ready to do it. I got to be totally outrageous. God damn, Dolomite. Was it good as Shad? Welcome to the Nomcast, the Netflix original movie podcast. I am your host, Andrew Morgan. You can follow the show at NomcastPod on Twitter and Instagram, or you can follow me at Jokes on Drew. This episode is a little bit of a break from the usual format. With the big success and almost universal praise for Eddie Murphy's Dolomite is my name, I wanted to get on a guest who knows most everything there is to know about the exploitation era of the 1970s and Rudy Ray Moore, and who is also an accomplished author, documentarian, comic book writer, and a major motion picture producer. And guess what? I did just that. This episode is an interview with the one and only David F. Walker, who has many credits that we go over in the interview, but his most recent is writer and producer of the upcoming Ryan Coogler adaptation of his comic book creation, Bitter Root. This was a great talk full of everything that you would want to know if you are a fan of the exploitation era films, Rudy Ray Moore, Eddie Murphy, comic books, documentaries, and of course, the film Dolomite is My Name. I think we go pretty light on the spoilers, but be warned that we don't necessarily hold back. Okay, so be sure to check out everything David F. Walker on his website, davidfwalker.com. And if you like what you hear in this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to the Nomcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get quality podcasts. And maybe drop us one of those five-star bad boys if you don't mind. Okay, I hope you enjoy this one. Thanks so much for tuning in. And give a listen, you no-business-born, insecure motherfuckers! I guess we can we can probably start there. You are regarded as one of the leading experts in African-American cinema. You produced Macked, Hammered, Slaughtered, and Shafted, one of the definitive documentaries on the topic of black exploitation films, which that term still trips me up as a white person to use that term. <laughs> It's kind of a pejorative thing there that, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel right off the tongue, especially yeah. in this day and age where we all you know, are obviously more sensitive about words than before. On our, um, on our P's and Q's for sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you're in Portland, ground zero kind of for a lot of those things. <laughs> but you're also obviously the creator of Badass Mofo, which has basically become the resource guide to black films in the 1970s. And, and we were just talking about your, your comic book writing. I, you won awards for Shaft. Uh, I know I'm telling you your biography to your face. So it's, <laughs> uh, I'm, it's more for the audience's sake uh, at this point. And obviously your success now with Bitter Root. And, and obviously it looks, you know, from the outward perspective, obviously that you worked on a lot of African-American characters. Is yes. that on purpose on your end or is that some kind of... Uh, I don't want to say typecasting, but obviously maybe uh, they sought you out for a specific reason. 
probably I would say it's a little it's a combination of the two. Um, okay. These are all characters that I they a lot of them are characters I've wanted to work on, and and I recognize the importance of it uh, of you know of representation in pop culture, and then I think there's just I you know for for better or worse I'm that I'm one of those people whose name pops up when they're like oh hey we're gonna we're going to do a black superhero. We got to get a black writer. I guess we'll get, right. this guy, you know, and you know, there's, uh, and I've done more than just that, but again, for better or worse, that's sort of how, how I know that I'm capable of more. Uh, the people that know me really well know that I'm capable of more and, and that right. I've definitely right. done more. So, um, I, I, but it's just interesting. I think that my attitude towards all of this w- would have been a lot different if I hadn't spent so much time studying black exploitation and, getting to know a lot of the, the people that were involved in it and understanding both the, the, the positives and the negatives of, of, for lack of a better term, typecasting. Yeah. And I mean, uh, it's interesting, obviously you're bringing up something, uh, that's near and dear to this movie and the era that you're so familiar with in terms of representation. And, yeah. you know, obviously you're, you're a scholar on the subject, but obviously a lot of a lot of I don't know your age, but I will say for myself, I am a 37 year old white suburban male who also went through a, a period of time where I divulged in many black exploitation movies. I had all the the Shaft collection, uh, you know, Sweet Sweet Back, you know. Uh, yeah, you know, it list goes all, on. All Foxy Brown, yeah, coffee, yeah, yeah. all those, and I was watching that in the '90s without it being kind of like an in-your-face thing, outside of kind of like maybe Tarantino dropping a, a movie with you know s- stars <laughs> from that period, or or giving a nods and in, in soundtracks or in things like that to kind of to bring things like that to the fold. But how does your story begin here? How did you come about them? And how did you come to appreciate them so much as to dedicate a large part of your life to them? Well, I, when I was a kid growing up uh, in the seventies, I, I knew these movies, but I, I wasn't old enough to go see them. You know, most of them were rated R and I was still pretty young, but right. I would, you know, I would hear the ads on the radio because that's what you did in the seventies. You listened to the radio and you see, I'd see ads on television and, and my older cousins would go see these movies. And my grandparents had subscriptions to both Ebony and jet magazine. So, so all this, I was exposed to all this stuff, but I didn't get to see any of it. And, and I honestly, you know, 1978, 79, the, the concept of home video was still a little ways off. I, I never thought I was ever going to get to see most of these movies, you know, once in a while, something might turn up on TV. Right. I, I, first time I ever saw Shaft, I saw it on TV. And, but then the, the home video revolution of the, of the 80s with VHS, suddenly these movies that I was aware of that I always wanted to see when I was a kid, I was suddenly able to see them. I was, I was able to go to the store. A lot of them were available. And um, one of the movies that I did see when I was really young was Enter the Dragon, Bruce Lee and Jim Kelly in that movie really captured my imagination as a kid. And right around the time that I started, you know, going to the video store and renting stuff, some of his movies were the first ones I, I, you know, got my hands on like black belt Jones and three, the hard way. And there was Mm -hmm. a Western he was in. So all of like a, a lot of it was just, I took advantage of this opportunity that home video provided, which is to finally see these movies that I'd, I'd been curious about as a kid. This is, you know, in the eighties and, and even going into the nineties, but 
by the time we were going into the 90s, I was studying film pretty seriously and, and really interested in the history of film and, and studying filmmakers and kind of wondering what had happened to all these these people that I, I whose names I knew and whose movies I was starting to watch and, and really get into. And and I guess that's, you know, the rabbit hole that I went down is um was asking, you know, sort of, well, what happened to these, you know, what what happened to Jim Kelly? How come, you know, it just seemed odd to me that that he had no career, but yet Chuck Norris had a TV show. Right. right? And so um and that was sort of the beginning of of this this very long life journey. Um, it was, it started out as little more than, than curiosity. And, and also again, like a love of film, you know, um, I remember, I I can't remember the exact year when Cooley high came out Mm. on, on VHS, but I remember knowing about Cooley high because, you know, everyone said that it was a, that, it was uh, that what's happening, the TV show, what's happening was supposed to be a spinoff of, of Cooley high, which really wasn't, but right. I, I, um, but I remember there was one time Cooley high was on TV when I was a kid and it was on at like two o'clock in the morning on the late, late show. And I remember taking a nap during the day so I could stay up really late and watch it. And I still only was able to stay awake for like 10 minutes. Right. This right. is, you know, sometime in the late seventies, early eighties. And I was just like, man, I, I, you know, I want to see this movie so bad. And then they released Cooley High on video right around the time Boys in the Hood came out, which mm-hmm. is one of their, you know, one of the, the, the waves of, of black films. They, for a long time, it kind of came in these cycles. And you know, Boys in the Hood came out, and they dropped on home video. Let's see, I remember Truck Turner and Cooley High came out. There was a couple others. And at that point, like all the Pam Greer stuff was out, most of the Fred Williamson stuff was out, and I'd seen all that. But it was just it was it was constantly this discovery process. So, you know, here's a movie, Cooley High, came out in seventy-five, and I probably didn't see it all the way through until like ninety or ninety-one when I, you know, finally was able to rent that thing. Right. And that was it. So then what turns you on to making a career out of it? Well, you know, I um I, I remember sitting around obsessing over Jim Kelly and, and all these movies and, um, and really sort of curious about what had happened to them. And there was, a, there was an interview with, I found an interview with Jim Kelly in an old Kung Fu magazine, actually, cause I just collect odd, <laughs> weird stuff. Right. And, and the interview was probably <laughs> yeah. from like 83 or 84. And he was sort of talking about the death of the films of the seventies. And he was talking about the, the economic, component of it all, which is stuff I, I didn't really know about. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. Right. So I I remember talking to I was just starting to dabble in film and I was talking to some of my friends and I kept saying, you know, someone should do a documentary about, you know, it, 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 originally it was just going to be about Jim Kelly because he was like a god to me, right? And um sure. And I was like, someone should do a you know a documentary about Jim Kelly. And, you know, Nobody thought that was interesting. And then and then I was I kept saying, well, you know, okay, maybe it wouldn't be just about him, but you know, what about Pam Greer? What about you know, what about the guy from the Dolomite movies? You know, at this point I'd seen all these movies and I was just curious, like, where were all these people? And um and nobody I talked to everyone was kind of like, Well, yeah, it's an okay idea, but if you want to do it, you should you're the one who's gotta do it. So that's that's sort of what set me down that path. And I wasn't taking any of that stuff 
as seriously as I do now, because at that point I still hadn't met any of these folks. Right. Um, right. But I, I, once I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make a documentary. I, you know, I'm going to meet as many of these people as I can, and I'm going to interview them and I'm going to find out the real deal. And, um, and, and at this point I decided to start documenting all the movies that I was watching so I could keep track of everything, you know, just like basic stuff like, okay, which is, which is Pam Greer's best movie. And I would write these really bizarre notes to myself. And um, <laughs> they were just sort of like these rambling non sequiturs, you know, whatever. Cause it's sometimes I was watching, cause you got to keep in mind, I was balancing this with like a crappy day job, you know? Um, right. And, uh, and, and so then I, at some point, you know, I, I, I started, I, I hooked up through with some people down in LA and managed to get some introductions and actually started shooting the movie and and that in and of itself was such a long process and it was so so many ups and downs that while i was doing it i recognized that i needed um another creative outlet that was a little bit more immediate than making a documentary so i started taking all these notes that i had compiled watching these movies and then interview notes from the interviews and i i just decided to publish a zine because that's what everybody was doing back in the nineties. It was like, yeah, right. it's not enough. You're making a movie. Let's start a little publication and, and see what happens with that. And, um, you know, yeah, I grew up in the punk scene. It was very similar. Yeah. 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 All that stuff, you know, um, and the, the with maximum rock and roll, which was, you know, sort of like everybody's yes. Bible five. And, and so I was, I was exposed to the, to the zines and I was like, well, you know, I can do this. And, you know, and, and while I was doing that, I was still conducting interviews and still doing research and just sort of getting deeper and deeper into this particular world. And I was just talking to a young man the other day. He's making a documentary. And, and I, I said to him, I said, you know, when you're done. This is this will change your life because there's there's people who are, are sharing like really incredible insights with you that. It's this. It's not that different than if it was a college professor, you know. But it's a little bit more condensed, I guess. And and that's sort of how it was for me, you know. Right. Was, um, you know, one day I, I somebody said something to me, and I I said something back, and I was like, wait a minute, didn't Ron O'Neill say that? You know, wait a minute, didn't this is something that Max Julian once <laughs> told me, you know? So, uh, yeah, it, it, that's how it that's how it all came together. Now I know the the zine also had the component where, uh, and I. Obviously, assume it's always been badass mofo, or has yeah. it? Yes, it's always been with the A Z Z as opposed to an A S S. Right. Yeah, because I knew that most stores wouldn't carry it if it if the word ass was on the cover. So. Oh, of course. Well, I mean, obviously, that's not too dissimilar from what Rudy Ray Moore went through. Yeah. Uh, where obviously the swearing generation, uh, Red Fox, kind of you know doing his best to not uh, to be vulgar, but not be too vulgar or there was lines that were drawn in the sand and obviously they bring that up in the film as well uh, yeah, in that yeah. weird uh blowjob scene or <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that they that they try to do the distinctions between you know sucking a cock or being a cocksucker yeah yeah, yeah. but obviously I, I believe this is where kind of like the comic stuff starts for you as well and I, I don't know the timeline in terms of it but obviously you took your appreciation and at one point wanted to make a Dolomite comic book. Uh, yeah. And, and obviously that kind of turned into funky town at one point. 
Yes, it did. And and comics actually go back further for me than than anything else. But I was I I was a terrible artist. I I couldn't draw to save my life. And um, <laughs> yeah. And even though I, I I went to art school and you know studied and and just never quite got the got. Well, I didn't apply myself. Is really what it comes down to. But <laughs> um, but writing came fairly easily for me. So by the time I was about 20, 19 or twenty, I had I I'd sort of given up on the dream of of drawing comics. I was still writing comic book scripts, but I was also writing screenplays and I was writing long, long form essays, and I was really evolving into a writer and who had aspirations for film and comics. But, um, you know, I only had so much energy in the course of a day or a week or a month or a year. So so I kind of got away from comics, but it was always there in the back of my head. And and um, when I started working on the documentary and started publishing Badass Mofo, I I still was I kept saying, okay, well, now you're publishing You you at some point you could you know, do your own comics, which I did. Obviously, you mentioned Funky Town and, and Funky Town had started out was supposed to be a Dolomite comic. And right. I had been talking to Rudy in the late 90s and probably as early as 2000, 2001 about it. Um, and and it was just, it was a lot of it was about money. And there's a whole business side to licensing something. And right. that all between the money and the licensing and, and all the paperwork that it was going to take, which I, I didn't have the money to do any of that sort of stuff. It was like, okay, this is never going to happen, you know? Um, well, this, and that's kind I, of the story of Eddie Murphy's story with this movie, because basically yeah, yeah. he tried to make the movie 16 years ago and yep. Rudy wanted a million dollars before the script was even written. And Eddie kind of drew the <laughs> <Yeah>. line <laughs> and, uh, you know, it didn't happen. Yep. That's it. That was it. So, you know, it was like, hey, I can't blame Rudy for wanting money, but there was I, I didn't have that kind of money, you know. Right. Um, and so I was like, well. I can still write a comic that's that's similar to the story I, I had envisioned because what I because really what I wanted to do with with the Dolomite comic was to go more in the direction that uh, Rudy's movie P Wheatstraw had done mm-hmm. and I wanted to have like you know more of a supernatural element and I was like I, I envisioned Dolomite taking on like vampires and werewolves and things like that so right I had already come up with this really basic story and. You know, so uh, a friend of mine at the time was like, hey, you know, let's do a comic together. And I was like, well, I happen to have this idea that, you know, it was pretty fully formed. I just needed to, you know, change a few details and and change it from Dolomite to something else. And, you know, it's that that project is so old now that I look at it and part of me is like, oh, man, I'm glad I didn't have the money to license, you know, Dolomite from Rudy because I would have thrown all my money into a comic that would have been really poorly written as far as I'm concerned. You know, right. it's like I, I still had a lot to learn at that point. And, um, you know, but it was, it was still, it's, it's, there's still moments where I'm just like, Oh man, you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda. And um, it's, it's, but it's also funny to me because I can tell people, you know, back then I was like trying to borrow money from people and say, Hey, I, I'm going to do a Dolomite comic. And everybody was like, what? <laughs> and, and now I could, now I can tell people and it's more of a, a, a funny aside. It's like, Oh yeah, I was trying to do Dolomite comic. Really? Like the Netflix thing. You know? right. So 
you know, for me, it's just I'm I'm glad that that Rudy's story is has finally been told. Yeah, I don't want to be your agent or anything, but I would kind of <laughs> say if any time uh, that you have sort of the so far the peak of your powers to kind of get the juice to get it off the ground, uh, I would think now would be the time. Uh, if that was still uh, a fancy for you, I know. I think I read in an article that you said like kind of. Black Dynamite took the air out of the balloon for you a little bit with uh, yeah, the, the, the interest animated, in it. I, I mean, I love the Black Dynamite animated show. I, I mean, I truly, truly loved it, and I still watch it from time to time. And I feel like, okay, they did it, and and no matter what, at this point, it would look like I was chasing their tail, you know, even right. if it was a Dolomite thing. And it's like, no – you know, let Michael Jai White and and that whole crew let they they can keep doing their thing, and and I'll just let it be. I mean, if I were to do anything with Dolomite now, you know, I would I probably just want to do like a a gra- uh, like a nonfiction graphic novel about Rudy's life more sure. than anything else. I mean, so, um, but that's also sort of where some of my interests have have shifted over the years. Like I feel like even back then I thought Rudy was way more interesting than than Dolomite or his or the movies. Right. Um and and even then that was like when you would talk to people about him, when I would talk to people about him or or Jim Kelly or Ron O'Neill or or any of those folks, it was always kind of difficult to to convince them, no, no, the, the real story is just them. You right. know, and and um it was there's a lot of long conversations with with different people about the need to write their memoirs and and you know sadly most of them never did right I, I know that um uh mark oh I can't now I'm drawing a complete blank on his name but there's a guy who's got a um who's written he is Rudy's official biographer and and I believe the book is coming next year yeah I believe he followed me on Instagram <laughs> yeah 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 He's a, he's a good guy. And, and so it's like, okay, that's, that's one checked off the list, but there's so many others that so many other stories to be told. Right. And, and that's kind of where I would ask you, so what is it about Rudy? And obviously Eddie Murphy agrees with you and, and the screenwriters, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski agree with you as well, that Rudy and the story of the making this movie is a, a better and smarter idea than say remaking Dolomite with Eddie Murphy yeah. or trying some efforts oh, of that. Yeah. So what is it about no, Rudy that makes it, I mean, obviously we saw a lot of it in the movie, but to you, what do you think is the appeal of Rudy Ray Moore? Well, I think the appeal of Rudy Ray Moore is, I guess it's that, 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 that drive, right? Yeah. The drive to do it. And, and nothing's going to get in your way. No, no matter how much rejection is thrown at you, thrown at you and, and how many setbacks you face, you, you bounce back, you keep going. And, and I think it's really interesting because, you know, I've watched the movie a couple times now and, you know, there's, there's points of the movie where, where Eddie or, you know, Rudy is saying, you know, we don't, we don't know what we're doing here. We're just doing this. Right. Right. And it's like, you know, if you watch the first Dolomite, it's, very obvious they didn't know what they were doing right but they still did it right and then they were they got a little bit better human tornado was a was a better movie and and i think pd wheatstraw was even better than that and like if i look at my own life right i can look at say the first issue of badass mofo or that funky town comic or or any other things that i've done and the first one's never the best. Right. It's you learning and, and making mistakes, but it's it's throwing caution to the wind. And there's a lot of people that will tell you, oh, that's a bad idea. 
that's not you can't do it and it's like well who are you to tell me this sure you know and 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 it's like and i think that that story that concept is is pretty like like we all love that story and if you look back at say the ed wood movie Mm -hmm. it's it it follows a similar structure and a similar story the underdog but the, the difference between ed wood and rudy which is really you got to make a very clear distinction is that at some point Rudy made good movies. Yes. Now, not everybody might like his movies, but there are some good elements and they're entertaining. And if you like a, a good exploitation flick, Rudy made them. Right. You know, um, and, and that's the difference. But, but the, the similarity is, is, you know, deep down inside, most of us have our dreams. We dare to dream, but we don't dare to do anything about them. Right. And, you know, Rudy, his, his background, you know, coming from the, the you know, um, Arkansas sharecropping family and, and all the things that he went through, that's sort of what makes it that much more interesting. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah. he, he, um, you know, and again, it's funny because like I say this all the time, you, if you watch Dolomite, you can tell that that movie was made by people who didn't know how to make movies. Yes. Right. But they still made a movie, right? And and then they and it made enough money and it resonated with enough people that they were able to do more, and and it it impacted enough people, and and, and his albums too, you know, the the comedy records that he did, those impacted just enough people that they they wanted to carry on, yeah. you know, they wanted they they wanted to make sure his legacy lived, and and I think that that in and of itself is a pretty interesting dynamic because you know vhs has come and gone and dvd for a large part has come and gone and and vinyl has come and gone all these platforms of of pop culture have come and gone and and with each platform that comes and goes things get lost right right? and and the fact that rudy's career and his work survived it survived vinyl it survived vhs it survived dvd all the way to make it to streaming, right? He himself didn't make it, but there's so many films out there. There's so many comedians out there. There's so many books out there. Mm-hmm. There's so many albums that have been recorded that are completely lost to time. And and that any one thing can endure and survive is is kind of remarkable. Yeah. Um and and then when it's somebody who really, you know, by for all intents and purposes never should have done it if he hadn't created the opportunity for himself because no one was going to let him do it and that's the thing i mean that's the thing that it keeps coming back to and and i mean i I remember as a kid people telling me oh you'll never get to make comics you know you're not smart enough you don't you know you you get bad grades and you know well okay if that's what you think i'm just going to keep doing it right And, and and so that's part of why you know and then meeting someone like rudy getting to know him over the years was like just made it that much better because, you know, he, he really was encouraging, you know, he wanted his money, but he was also encouraging to, to, to young people trying to do stuff. For sure. And, and is that the appeal for you too? Was he inspiring to you? Yeah, he was, he really was. And, and the thing that was really super inspiring about him to me that, um, that it, it doesn't, you don't really see it in the movie and, and not too many people ever talk about it, but him and I talked about it a lot was that Rudy really did study what other people had done and what had come before him. So he was a, you know, a big fan of a lot of old films from the thirties and forties and filmmakers like, you know, uh, 
Spencer Williams and, and Oscar Micheaux, a lot of the black cast mm. and race movies from the 30s and 40s. And, and so he, like those were conversations that we'd had in the past about how that stuff influenced him and how the work of, of generations past had influenced him. And, and that's sort of my thing too, you know, like I, I'm the sort of person who, you know, one day says, hi, I wonder whatever happened to Jim Kelly and, you know, the guy from Enter the Dragon. And then, you know, 20 years later, <laughs> there's a career that's been partially built on asking that one question, right. you know, and, and that's sort of what I, what I really loved about Rudy was that, that he, there was a person aside from the Dolomite persona. And, and if you got to know that person, you were pretty fortunate, even if it was just, you know, in passing. Yeah. And, and I think I, I wonder obviously if Eddie Murphy also shares that same feeling. Uh, I know that, you know, Rudy Ray Moore was someone that he met early on in his stand up career. And, and I know Rudy even like said like, Hey, we should go on tour, you know, before yeah. uh, Murphy was even a big name. Yeah. I wanted to kind of, to, to get that on the roll. Cause I think, you know, obviously Rudy is such a doer. You know, I think the yeah, only person yeah. with more jobs than Rudy Ray Moore is possibly you. And, <laughs> and you know, obviously Eddie, you know, sees something in that because Eddie is a, you know, is a, a hard worker. He's a, a long time, uh, big time performer. He, he, I can see where he can find this script appealing and this story appealing, especially because right now, ironically, he's in more of a, yeah, a betting on himself or trying to get passion projects done or or things of that ilk like what's interesting is this movie it gets done because murphy's involved but i would also say that the 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 story is is that scott alexander and larry karaszewski came off of making the people versus oj simpson and could basically do no wrong and they finally had a chance to be like hey you're gonna give us money to do anything we want (laughs) <laughs> and they they were the same people who worked with Eddie back, you know, 16 years prior. And they you would think that the people who made Ed Wood, the people who wrote People versus Larry Flint, Man on the Moon, the people who know how to make a movie like this should already have the clout in Hollywood and the momentum to get something like this done. But weirdly enough, it took yep. American Crime Story. <laughs> to to let them get back in the good graces of Hollywood and kind of tip the scales and it, and it ends up being a kind of a a resurgence for Eddie Murphy too cuz he hadn't even made a movie in 3 years no no I was going to say you're 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 on a roll there it's <laughs> and it's true it's um you know I mean Eddie look I, I'm a huge fan of Eddie Murphy's you know and and I'm not that much younger than him so I I'm a kid I'm in high school watching Saturday Night Live when Eddie Murphy's on and he's like 19 or 20. So he's probably like, we'll say like five to six years older than me at the most right. and just sort of marveling at this guy. Right. And and I remember going to see 48 hours in the theater when it came out and was like, oh, that, you know, that guy from Saturday Night Live is in this movie. Yeah. Let's go check it out. Um, and I was just enough of a nerd that I knew who Walter Hill was. Mm. Right. So it was like double, you know, this double whammy. Um, and then trading places after that Mm -hmm. and, and just like watching this guy. And, and I think that for, especially people of, of like my generation, that there's this, um, this sense of, of knowing Eddie 
in some capacity. And, you know, obviously I've never met him. I don't know him, but there's this, you know, we, that's how we glom on to celebrity. Oh uh, yeah. I remember him back in the day. (laughs) I remember when the beastie boys before they recorded, you know, rap albums when they were still punk rockers, you know, um, exactly, exactly. So I, I think that, um, that there's just as seeing the, the story of Rudy, sort of triumph over everything. It's great to see Eddie triumph over everything. And, and I'll tell you what's really interesting to me about this. I, I've seen it now three times. Okay. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's I've how seen much it a I couple times. It, it's enjoyable. And I think it gets better with the extra viewings. It, it does. And this is the thing. Cause I, I, as I've gotten older, you know, I'm, I don't, I wouldn't say that I've become more like timid or conservative or anything, but I was like, wow, I really miss profanity. You know, <laughs> like I missed really good creative use of profanity. And, and cause I was that kid who was always getting in trouble in school for swearing at teachers and all that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm pretty vulgar for the most part. And, and I love, <laughs> but, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, sometimes you just, you're just not doing it well. And, and it was like, the, the first time Eddie Murphy swears in the movie, which is really early, right? You're like, man, when was the last time I heard Eddie swear? Oh, this is like, Oh yeah. It was like poetry. It was like, it really wasn't. It was, it was so bizarre. And, and yeah, I don't know if he took an active, I I forget whether that was like an intentional move on him over the years where I know, obviously he started doing more family pictures and, you know, it's kind of like the ice cube thing as well, where it's like, okay, he's starting to make, you know, uh, (laughs) all those type of, same type of pictures that yeah, Eddie was doing family movie. You know, yeah. 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 Weirdly enough at the time he was trying to get this movie made, he's doing like daddy daycare. Yeah. And he's doing those things. So can you imagine the turn that would have had to happen yeah, <laughs> if and- he's going from just starting to do those kind of softer family pictures to then turning into this, at least he's had some time for the audience to kind of, you know, he's had some space between success. Yeah, no, I think there's, I think there was definitely time where he, he wasn't going to be able to make something like this. It's, you know, his movies have always made money, even if they didn't make money here in the U S they, um, they were, they were making money overseas, but you know, I don't honestly, like, I can't remember. I never saw that he did that movie, uh, with Brett Ratner, (laughs) which was like, it was a heist movie of some kind. And yeah, I, he was in, I spy. Uh, uh, well, yeah, I don't know if that no, was Ratner. No, he, no, that wasn't the, that wasn't the, uh, it wasn't, I spy. It was something else. Cause I didn't see it specifically cause Brett Ratner directed it. Right. And I was like, <laughs> right. It's like, I, I just, you know, I have too much self-respect to watch this movie. So I, right. I remember seeing <laughs> I spy and, and a bunch of these other movies, but all of them were like, uh, okay. You know, it was just like, in, in a lot of ways, it was like watching Richard Pryor stuff. You know, Richard yeah. Pryor was honestly, he was never, Richard Pryor was never better than when he was a stand up. He made a couple, he yeah. made a handful of okay movies, but they never captured that, that true energy of him as a stage performer. Whereas no. Eddie made some, you know, there are some movies where he really did some interesting stuff as an actor, as a performer. So the movies don't necessarily hold up that well over time, but you know, Beverly Hills cop, it's like he had this energy and it's like, yeah, that energy wasn't in daddy daycare. I don't want to see that. Right. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's like, you don't want to see your, your, your best friend, like totally give up their edge. And that's what it felt yeah. like, you know? 
And I don't know what's changing for him now, but he's definitely hearing what you just said because, you know, in 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 December he's hosting SNL. Uh, in twenty twenty, he's doing the Coming to America sequel. They're in development on Beverly Hills Cop Four. Yeah, you know, like he he's basically just going back to prior IP, which is basically the the modern thought right now. Anyway, he's kind of capitalizing on, I guess. But you know, it's kind of what people want to see from him. Yeah, and it's it's you know, he's he. I think you hit a certain age where you just go, okay, what do I want to do? What do I want to do with the time that I have left? You know, and right. and it's um, if if he can find the good scripts and and he can you know i i i i shudder at the thought of beverly hills cop 4 simply because <laughs> beverly hills cop 3 was terrible and mm. the i've seen the unaired pilot for the tv show and that oh, was yeah. one of the worst things i've ever seen in that was like blackenstein bad but um <laughs> but you know I, I i hope he finds you know i hope he get, can find some artistic um some artistic success and, and, and that's, that's the key thing. And, and, you know, ultimately that's what we, we don't want to see people fail, you know, even, you know, even though I, you know, well, maybe Kanye West might be nice, but, um, you know, for the <laughs> most part, we, we want to see the people who, whose work we've liked and enjoyed continue to find success. And, yeah. and I think that that's the, that's the exciting thing about him and, and where he's at right now. Well, and the beauty of the rest of the, cast here too uh is that you have wesley snipes here oh yeah <laughs> well i think he's terrific in this movie <laughs> he's never not entertaining uh in this film obviously as derville martin yep and he hasn't made a hit since god you could say blade trinity something like yeah you well know? that's definitely because then he went to prison for a while and uh, right the tax evasion stuff yeah so he's been he's he, making workout videos <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, what he did, um, he was like in one of the Expendables movies. I know that. Yes, he was. Um, and I think he, it was four. It maybe was three, three or something like that. Yeah, and then he, um, and he was on a TV show that was that was very short lived, and like because I knew some friends that had a show in development, and they were talking about casting him, and they met him. They said he was a really sweet guy, but it was just like. Yeah, it just seemed like his career was like, oh boy, this is it's over for him, you know. Um, right. And you know, and again, everybody in the movie too, because you know, um, Mike Epps was great in it, and and um, Keegan Michael Key. Yeah, everybody. So it, it, it yeah. was just really fun to see people. It looked like they were having a good time. You never know. I mean, they they could have been like you know the Eagles or someone like that, secretly hitting <laughs> each other behind the scenes. But right. Um, but it doesn't come across on screen. It comes across like they're all having a good time. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, you, you've you brought up certain things that I definitely wanted to touch on. And thank you for that. It's, uh, you know, obviously you're seeing representation, yeah. su- such as obviously how the, the 70s black exploitation era for, for, for better or for worse, at least it was something that was usually made in a, you know, a black community style or at least, you know, black Hollywood style where it was, you had a black director, you had a, had to have a black lead. Generally, most of the cast is black and, and, you know, obviously uh, even the writing staff, as you're seeing with this movie, it was all hands on deck uh, right out of, you know, (laughs) Rudy Ray Moore's backyard. Yeah. 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 The, the thing that people don't think about, and you know, when we talk about black exploitation movies, we often talk about 
negative stuff and some of the controversy that surrounded those films when we also but we forget about like just what it was like for audiences to go see those movies back then you know um right. at a time when there wasn't a lot of representation a lot not a lot of inclusion in hollywood and and or tv film or tv and um you know it sometimes it just feels good to see yourself up on screen now right. at some point you want it you want a little more variety you want a little bit more um you know complexity to the characters but you know it's and that was a thing like one of the great moments in that movie was when they first meet derville martin and and he's you know kind of got that attitude and yeah you know and they were like oh wait a minute you were the elevator operator right yeah, and rosemary's baby. <laughs> and rosemary's baby and that's the thing like what people don't get is like before the 70s before black exploitation most black actors those are the sort of roles they played so derville martin was the elevator operator in rosemary's baby he was the guy that they almost got into a car accident with in guess who's coming to dinner like he <laughs> right. just he had these you know one scene cameos and yet he was considered you know uh essentially an a-list black actor but that's what he was that's all he was doing and then goes from that to you know being second build and in, in all these movies with fred williamson and then he starts directing and but it was it was such a uh, an incredible change and 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 nobody really talks about the the impact that that had right or very few people talk about the impact that that had yeah i mean if you don't do this you don't get an eddie murphy or exactly. presumably so. I mean, you know, he obviously talks about that influence. The interesting thing I think about this movie, though, is that even though he has some ties to some larger African-American pictures, you have Craig Brewer being the director, being a white director, and obviously the two writers being white as well. I mean, they're yeah. definitely great for the job and produced a very big thing. But I don't know if that was ever controversial for a movie such as this. And, and a movie that so largely shows the representation that's so important that I'm curious, you know, how, how it ended up in their hands, or at least Craig Brewer's hands. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's another question altogether. I, I, I've <laughs> often wondered that. I've, I've thought about that, too. And I think that it's, you know, there's there's this whole machine in Hollywood, you know, and, and, and at Netflix that I'm sure they were looking at it. And it's like, okay, who's available? Who wants to, you know, who knows who had lunch with whomever, you know, True. or, or ran into each other at the golf course or something like that. Um, and, and, and my attitude is like, okay, well, yeah, there's, there's, I'm sure there's some black directors out there that could have done a great job. In fact, I know some of them, but right. Craig Brewer did a really solid job with this movie. I'm not going to complain. And, and as far as the script goes, um, you know, the script is solid. Like, yeah. could I have written a better script? I don't know. You know, um, are there black writers that could have written a better script? I don't know. Now, here's the thing. There's other movies to be made. There's other stories to be told. Sure. So let's maybe we'll move on and do that. But but I'm just honestly, if you had told me a couple of years ago, oh, they're going to make a movie about Rudy Ray Moore and his career. I, w I wouldn't, I'd been like, ah, that's never going to happen. Right? right. And then, and then on top of that, it's like, okay, but is it going to be any good? And right. and I was, you know, I was sweating that one out for the longest time. So I was like, what if this movie sucks? Yeah. And fortunately it, it was good. It was really good. Now, uh, obviously you're, you're steeped in the black exploitation era as far as on a scholarly level. Are there other stories that, 
are just as appealing that you can see now that this has been largely a very big success that something else might come along out of this or something that um, obviously we're in the remake era on, on high volume. Uh, is there something that you think people will see in this that they can be like, oh, we could duplicate this if there's still a big audience for this? Oh, of course. There's always going to be that stuff. I, I think one of the things that's really interesting is, uh, you know, Mario Von Peebles made a, a movie about his dad making sweet, sweet back. That's right. And that's, you know, that thing's, that movie's got to be 10, 15 years old and it's pretty yeah. solid. And it follows a lot of the same, you know, the, the same biopic story beats that, that Dolomite is my name follows. In fact, I should dig out my copy of Badass and watch it and yeah. you know see. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think that there's there's some some specific stories and then there's some general stories as well that that could be told. I think that there's, um, I mean, I know that personally the story that I've been wanting to do for for years now is is the making of the Mac because mm. I think that that I think the behind the scenes story of that is is one of the most fascinating stories that I've ever encountered interesting um, and i know, haven't heard that a, one yeah it's 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 a it's like pretty nuts you know it involves people getting murdered and um drug dealers and pimps and the black panther party and all that sort of stuff and and i think that um there was for a long time i was talking to mike campus who was the director uh i wanted to write a book about the making of the mac and you know put together a, a publishing a proposal for publishers and it never went anywhere because everybody mm. was like who cares about this sort of stuff and right. so I, I think about like with with this movie with dolomite is my name i think oh yeah i wonder how long other people you know how, how often did they hear oh who cares about rudy raymore more who cares about that story right and it's like well there are people who care you it's 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 all in the execution there's a um a documentary on Netflix that a friend of mine told me the other day to watch. And I haven't watched it yet. It's um about the band Chicago. Mm. And, and he was like, dude, you got to see this, this documentary about Chicago. And I was like, I don't like that group. Right. Like, I know that's why you got to see it. <laughs> and, and I, and I feel like, I mean, I've heard from people in the last, you know, few days who've never seen a Rudy Ray Moore movie who don't know anything about him, but have seen, Dolomite is my name and they love it. And yeah. that's the true test of anything, right? It's like, you know, I, I know people who went and saw the, uh, you know, Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash movie right. that Joaquin Phoenix was in that didn't like Johnny Cash, which, yeah. you know, I don't know how that's possible, but hey. Um, <laughs> and, and that's the thing. It's it's if, if, it, if it's a good story well told, then it, uh, it, it should be appealing to, to all sorts of people. But you get unfortunately you get people get caught up in this idea of oh you know i don't see how that could be interesting you know and and it's like no seriously the the, the mac is not only is it a great film but the story behind it is so crazy and and i think that there's some other you know some other stories like that and 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 other careers like that i don't necessarily want to see a proliferation of that sort of stuff yeah. i would just like to see people taking you know um there, there's so much stuff that's lost. Uh, going back to what I was saying earlier, so many films that are lost or, or become obscure. They're, they're not available on streaming. It's, it's. Um, I still have a massive collection of, of DVDs, of Blu-rays. I even still have some old VHS laying around because there's some movies that just aren't 
impossible to find. And, yeah. and, um, you know, if every time I want to watch something, I have to, you know, oh, I've got to, I've got to rent it from, you know, Amazon or, or wherever. And, oh, but, oh, wait a sec, here it is on Blu-ray for four ninety nine. I'm, right. I'm going to buy it. I yeah. did that with the people under the stairs because I was like, <laughs> okay, wait a sec, it's going to be cheaper to buy the Blu-ray than it is to rent this thing. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's worth it. I'll buy it. So, <laughs> and that's huge. I mean, to uh, the streaming era. I mean, listen. Uh, I don't have a copy of Dolomite, and I turned yeah. on Amazon Prime, which I have, and Dolomite's right there. So yeah, it's yeah. it's it's great in the streaming era for something like this, where I can, you know, watch that movie, watch, you know, Eddie Murphy's version of of the telling of this, and and contrast and compare. I mean, obviously, some of those key scenes that you want to see the the remake or the, the uh, them represent well uh in yeah, yeah. making in a making of type movie which by the way i don't know if you're into this kind of almost as a genre too uh the the making of a movie type uh story obviously they don't oh, make I this movie stuff. until yeah. later yeah. in the movie but like the disaster yeah. artist is a recent version of something yeah. like that to where this is a nobody but we all know who this guy is because of a cult fascination. And then now we're seeing, you know, James Franco play him in a movie. And, you know, and that's the thing. Cause I, I'll be one of, I still haven't seen the disaster artist, right? Mm. Because I thought the room was one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. Oh, right? it's garbage. <laughs> and, and I was like, I don't want to celebrate this. I don't care. You know, everyone's like, no, the disaster artist, you got to check it out. I'm like, no, nah, it's okay. I'll, one of these days I'll see it. Right. But, you know, that was the thing. It's like, and, and it's so bad. It's good. Right. Yes. And it's like, well, no, usually a movie is so bad. It's bad. And, <laughs> and, and I hold to the, you know, I hold to this. It's like, I was the other day I was on Twitter and was going back and forth with somebody. And I was just like, no, trust me. If you've never seen a Rudy Ray Moore movie, watch the human tornado first, mm. watch, watch that one first. If you've never seen one and other people are getting in on the conversation and, but I was like, here's the thing. Petey Wheatstraw is my favorite, but it's so crazy that it's you, – you You might get lost. You might just be like, I can't handle this, right? Sure. And, and then Dolomite is a really crude film. It's just <laughs> – it's like it's not the best. I mean I love it. Don't right. get me wrong. Dolomite to me is the epitome of so bad it's good. Um, yeah, the Midnight but, Movie but, is kind of lost nowadays yeah oh definitely definitely and and the problem is is that i feel like it's forced i feel like and, and maybe that's just me and that's my sensibility in the age that i'm at where I, I but i felt like with the room um and and the to contextualize it i happened to see that movie years before anybody else did because i used to run a film festival and it was submitted to the film festival right and and when I was watching it with my, my assistant, we were both like, this is the worst thing we've ever seen. Yeah. And we were like, no way we're showing this at our festival. And then a few years later is when that whole midnight movie cult thing took off. And I remember Matt, my assistant like called me and was like, dude, you're, you're never going to believe this. And I was like, what? And he was like that movie, the room. And I was like, what? And so <laughs> I, I sat and watched this thing happen. And it was like, okay, I've seen there's, there's movies that deserve this more. You know, and and I don't. I've never met him, so I don't know what Tommy Wiseau is like. Right. But, um, 
but you know, so it's just interesting to me because it, it, it is very interesting. The movies that become quote unquote cult classics. And I think that a lot of times people are trying to make them right from the, from the onset. And it's not how it works. No. You know, it's, it's, uh, there's, there's something that resonates with an audience and, 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 and it's very different than the old days. It's even, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's different. If I were to, Hey, I'm going to, let's, I'm going to come over to your place and we're going to stream. This is very different than me showing up at your house with a VHS tape, you know, right. going, you gotta watch this. Yeah. You know, that's, which is what it was like the first time I saw the toxic Avenger it was like, <laughs> you know, you gotta see this thing. Yeah. Like, what is this? No, I, I actually was very fortunate to uh, interview Lloyd Kaufman in high school because we were very, yeah. very much into those. And, and he invited us to a, a, a screening of Citizen Toxie, I believe it was when it okay. came out. Yeah, yeah. And so it was those movies definitely had that appeal. And he knew it. He knew how to crank it up. He's a yep. Yale grad. He's not a dumb guy. He got how these things work and then mass produced them. And, and yeah, L- Lloyd is such a smart, he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Yeah. Really great guy. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. He, he, he's, he's, I've, I've had the opportunity to hang out with him multiple times and it's just so funny because it's like, you can talk to him about any sort of movies. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And he knows what he's talking about, but then people dismiss him because they're like, Oh, citizen toxie. I'm like, no, citizen toxie is pretty solid movie right? <laughs> for what it is. It's really, really good. Yeah. And obviously the people so, who yeah. work with him also get the joke too. Cause I believe in that movie, Corey Feldman, I believe is in that yeah. where he's not even listed as Corey Feldman. He's listed as kinky Finkelstein. Like they all get the joke. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, they all get the joke that, you know what you're going to get into. And, and weirdly he operates kind of like in the exploitation era. He like, they're, yeah. you know, like kind of lowered budget movies, a lot of, swearing violence nudity and just kind of tries to put a story to it that he wants to see yeah and it's it's you know i don't know i mean again there's something about you know the in in generations past you you had to go to the theater to seek this stuff out right sure and then you had to then you had to go to the video store and not just any video store had to be a video store that carried this stuff right and but now it's like well now it's here Right. It's 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 literally it can stream to your device. Yeah. It can be there's there's the hunt isn't the same. No. And and it's it's difficult to to explain it to anyone who hasn't experienced it before. Yeah. You know, I remember there, there's a movie from like it was like 81 or 82, this movie Vigilante mm. that uh, Robert Forster, who just passed yeah. away, is is in it. It's a Bill Lustig movie. And. I remember renting that on VHS with my cousin simply because it was rated R and they, the clerk was going to let us rent it at the video store, which it wasn't, it wasn't even a video store, dude. It was a grocery store that rented videos <laughs> yep, you know, been there, in the yep. early eighties. Yeah. And, and it was like the discovery of that particular movie was like, kind of blew us away. Like we, you know, we're probably like 13 or 14 at the time when we saw this thing. And, and again, it's like going back to toxic Avenger, you know, that I remember going into a video store and they had, there was a, like a poster for toxic Avenger with a sign over it that said, we will not rent this movie to anyone under the age of 18. Right. And it was like, well, then I'm renting it, (laughs) you know? And, 
and it's such a that that dynamic is different. I part of me feels bad for for you know a generation that will never have the 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 experience of going into a video store or for that matter going into like a movie theater and you know seeing a double feature of you know for me it was a double feature of uh Fright Night and Return of the Living Dead. Oh nice. And and Return of the Living Dead was like it was a a sneak preview screening that you know and it was like my cousin and i went and we were like what is this yeah. <laughs> and that's it you know a lot of that stuff is lost yeah it was an old oh man this, the theater smelled like piss <laughs> and there was roaches and rats in it and you know i'm sure we were taking our lives into our own hands being there but it was i mean it was the 80s it was yeah. it was a great time yeah I absolutely agree. There is something lost in it. The algorithm kind of takes away some of the adventure of, of doing these. And yes. what's nice about uh, doing a podcast like this though, is at least I, I get to kind of take requests from people or, or look into things that I never would have because of it. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, and horror, at least with Netflix seems to be where you kind of find those crazy gems uh, out of yeah, that. No, obviously not in much of the other genres, but. The, my last, I, I uh, this was a while back because I haven't watched any too many horror films recently. But this is a while back when a friend of mine was like, "Hey, have you checked out this movie called Train to Busan on Netflix?" And I was like, "No." And he was like, "You should watch it." And and I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> and so, I mean, I I absolutely love that movie. So yeah, you know, for me, it's um, I I tend to get more excited about documentaries the older I get, right. but um. There, there definitely is that there's still that discovery process. You can, it can happen. It's just, you know, um, I'm, I'm that guy who remembers, you know, first riding his bike as a kid to the video store, Mm -hmm. then getting, finally getting my driver's license and driving and then actually working at a video store for nearly four years. So that whole, all of that is, is, um, and in fact, a friend of mine has a documentary coming out. I, I can't remember the name of it. Um, my buddy James Westby has made a documentary about video stores oh, nice. and and the death of home video. And it's like it's it's pretty interesting because it's it's it was such a finite thing that you get anybody under a certain age is going to have no idea what you're talking no. about. You know, like even people listening right now under a certain age are going to be like, what, what's a video store? Right. You know, it's like, uh, you poor young whippersnappers. <laughs> you. Well, you even see in, in Dolomite is my name. Like, you know, obviously he was a stand up too, but he, he hits the road with the movie and you never see yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that either. And the video stores, at least when I was growing up was a place for that. I met John Waters yeah. in a video store. I met Isaac Hayes in a video store. You know, it, wow. it used to be a place yeah. where you can, you know, interact with some of these people that you've only seen in movies and places like these video stores, these kind of like small yeah. franchises, these, you know, or one-off video stores that, you know, they they went on the road and they hustled these movies. Yep, yep, yep. And so much of that stuff is gone. It's too bad. Yeah. We'll find something new to replace it, I guess. That's what that's well, that's what younger people need to for do. sure. And I think that's coming <laughs> back around, I think, because like concerts are more popular than they've ever been, and live events are doing that. So I wonder if there is gonna kind of be something coming back around the other end to kind of make these larger eventized things that aren't just Marvel movies. 
That would be nice. It would, it would be very be. nice. <laughs> so I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I did want to uh, ask you about one thing that I happened to find on your website that applies to what's kind of going on now and, and obviously the, the era that you're so familiar with. So I came sure. across an article that you wrote that uh, not only highlighted several black exploitation films for people to check out, but also examined another list that Variety had put out that oh, yeah. you, you had kind of <laughs> criticized for having several films that aren't actually within the black exploitation era, or at least as far as what you consider to be that. I know there are some scholars that don't even believe this to be a genre. They just believe it to be an era and it's yep. not exactly something that persists. Uh, I, yep. kn- I know you noted that like films like uh, you said, I think said like get out or black Panther or some of these other ones that have large black representation that some people want to lump those things in, or even a new Jack city or something along those lines. Uh, so where do you kind of draw the line? How do you define what you kind of, kind of bring to the table with this with this particular era or genre well i i tend to lean more into it as an era than than a particular genre per se so i i look at it as um 1970 to 1979 and like if it was a movie that was made for a black audience predominantly black audience marketed to a black audience then i i tend to consider everything black exploitation the era over the genre, right? right? So a movie like say Cooley High doesn't really qualify as a black exploitation movie, but because of the era, you have to realize that that movie probably never would have been made had it not been for say Superfly or Shaft or Sweetback, right? True. Um, and so I tend to look at it as more of an era and, and there was just sort of a general vibe that was going on and they were all, and they touch upon this in Dolomite is my name. They were all playing in the same types of theaters. These, right. these big um, former grand movie theaters that most of them are gone now, but they were, they, a lot of them devolved into grind houses and second run theaters. Right. Um, and, and so even though the, that, that era petered out and, and if you want to call the genre that petered out too, it didn't go away completely. It just evolved into something else. And, and that's where you get in the eighties, you got movies like say crush groove or action Jackson or the last dragon, stuff like that. Right. Then you go into the nineties, you got new Jack city boys in the hood juice, all that sort of stuff. So all those are, are sort of Neo black exploitation or nouveau black exploitation movies. And, and I feel like, that list that variety had by the definition of, of black exploitation, if you want to just call it, you know, if you, if you just adhere to the, the general era of 1970 to 79, there was only two of the 12 movies that was listed in that, that article right. that came out in the seventies, you know, and they had stuff like Django Unchained, mm. Jackie Brown and new Jack city. And I was like, well, if, if you're going to consider, you know, New Jack City to be a black exploitation movie, then you might as well consider American Gangster with Denzel Washington, right? Or Training Day, or or Get Out, or Black Panther, because the the same conditions, the Hollywood conditions that that allowed the black exploitation movement to happen and capitalized on it and made money off of it, is is has only just evolved into something different, right? And 
you know, I and I've gotten into arguments with, with people about this before. And like, <laughs> you know, Get Out is not a black exploitation movie, and Black Panther is not a black exploitation movie. And I'm like, no, it's not. But it's the evolution of where they where this stuff came from, right? right? And and it's you know when we talk about Eddie Murphy's career, like Eddie Murphy pr- may not have had a career if it hadn't been for Richard Pryor. Right. Right. You have to look at what you always have to look at what came before and understand how a leads to B leads to C leads to D. Right. And and so that's, you know, that's sort of my feeling about about it. And I always I always talk about it in context of being more of an era, black exploitation being more of an era. And then I talk I call it the movement more than I call it the genre, um, because the movement is allows you to include, say, Cooley High into that larger context because Cooley High is has nothing in common with say you know Slaughter's Big Ripoff right, right. Um, other than they were both AIP movies and and they were both marketed to a black audience but again the the conditions of of what where Hollywood was and what they were putting out and making money off of were the same. Sorry, I was oh, just on. gonna piggyback on something you said earlier about. Uh you were saying that one of the stars of that era was talking about the financial aspect of it. And I yeah. think yeah. we're kind of seeing a version of that now, and maybe not as much in the African-American community uh, and their films and their representation, but you're seeing it a lot in the same conditions that created uh black exploitation era that you're kind of seeing it with uh, the female empowerment movement and the post yeah. me too. Yeah. Because you're seeing like large, large scale, big blockbuster movies that are all female casts or all female reboots of these type of IP properties or, you know, and, and obviously we're coming out of the Me Too or Time's Up movement. And obviously back then, the civil rights movement kind of kicked this era into overdrive or or kicked off the era and and kind of, it's not like they were trying to make good for anything because that is not a hollywood thing to do um but they kind of realized that you know especially with a movie like uh what was it cotton goes to harlem uh yeah. was kind of the the it was not a part of quote unquote this era but it kind of kicked off this era where it was like oh wow black people go to the movies <laughs> and and, yeah. and the yeah. financial state of hollywood was not good no, not at all. And we're kind of seeing and, that and, now where everything's so fractured in terms of obviously yep. streaming and and the movies outside of like Marvel. Like you can't get a mid-budget movie made anymore unless it has some kind of IP attached to it. And I think a lot of times you're seeing now kind of that maybe if they come at it from a gender-specific idea that sometimes these movies can get made. Yeah, they're they're definitely trying to figure out how to make stuff work and how to make money. One of the things I, I would tell people is, yeah, don't spend so much money. You know, if you don't spend so much money, you might be able to make it. But you're right. Everyone wants to make these big tent poles and sure. these big uh, spectacle films. And, and, um, and as a consequence, and that's the thing where, you know, streaming has replaced home video. Right. And that's where some of this stuff goes to survive. But... I think one of the the things that's that's frustrating to me, and I, I was really trying to articulate this the other day, was that when you went to the video store, you had all the stuff that was you you know hopefully it was a well stocked shelf and you could you could pick and choose whatever you wanted. Whereas now it's like okay, I, I have to have a subscription to this service here and this service here and this service here, and it's you're spending all this 
you know, to me, it just seems like more money than you're ever going to be able to get your money's worth out of. For sure. If you've got your subscription to Netflix, your subscription to Disney Plus, your subscription to, you know, your Amazon Prime account, all that sort of stuff. And after a while, it starts to add up where it's like, okay, yeah, I remember back in the day, I would just, you know, $20 and I'd get a, a video rental card and that would get me, you know, 10, 15 rentals, you know, I guess that's the same thing as Netflix or, or whatever. It's just, I'm, I'm an old grumpy old bastard. <laughs> so I keep thinking about it. I keep contextualizing it slightly differently. Right. But yeah, I, I was, I was looking at it the other day and I was like, there's something that's a friend of mine was like, Oh, you've got to watch this show. And I was like, okay, you know what, what's it on? And they were like, Oh, I don't know. And I was like, well, what do you mean? You don't know. And then <laughs> turns out it was on, it was on Hulu. And I was like, Oh, well, yeah, I, I don't have Hulu. And not getting it right now so uh whatever yeah Yeah, unfortunately sometimes they just they don't realize that there is still an appeal to like stranger things or something like that being on video so that way people don't have to think about it and they could just rent it or buy it and kind of join the conversation with everyone else even if they don't have an account but yeah it's definitely a a different world um but i'm glad you know eddie murphy and his team kind of brought us back to a different time to to be able to have a conversation like this with you uh and obviously revisit some of the some of the lessons learned and some of the things that we can really grasp on to uh that is a largely a great story yeah no i agree 100 percent and and this is uh, honestly in terms of my my netflix subscription this was one of those things where i was like okay, this is worth it. You know, it's like, uh, I'm going to, I'll be keeping my Netflix subscription for a long, long time. Cause, uh, cause, cause this is one of those movies I'm going to go back and watch pretty regularly. Right. Um, you know, and there's a couple other things like I, I always go back and watch, um, big mouth a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one of those ones where it's sort of like, okay, I'm, I'm cool. Not having big mouth on video. I can just watch it on Netflix, but there's something about popping that disc in that just is, again, it's, it's the grumpy old bastard. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I appreciate uh, you being a grumpy old bastard and and being on this platform for me uh, and coming on here. uh, And I hope everyone not only checks out this movie, but checks out everything you do. Your, your website's quite impressive. Uh, and obviously all your success that's going to come through Bitterroot and, and any of your old products that may resurface now that uh, obviously Bitterroot is going to be a Ryan Coogler project as well. So congratulations on all that again, and thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. 